It is good to see you here. Appreciate you coming out and sliding in and uh, being a part of our service today. We really do appreciate it. We've been making our way through the book of Esther the last few weeks, and today we come to probably the best known verse, and well, many would say is the most inspiring verse in the entire book. You may know what it is when Mordecai says to Esther, who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. That's the focus of the book from the beginning when the king was throwing the big parties and then he wanted to parade Vashti out in front of the, the drunken men and she refused to come and then he kicked her out and then they started on a search for a new queen, and they looking through all the, the empire, looking for a queen. They bring in some, they, they go through the process, a year-long preparation, and finally, through all that, they end up choosing Esther as the new queen. And Mordecai is saying, hey, Esther, all that stuff, you becoming queen, it was by design. It was part of God's plan. And it's still today, a lot of people quote Mordecai in that. You'll see it on shirts, on hats, on mugs, on social media posts. People feel inspired by that phrase. But I'm not sure we're using that verse quite like it was meant to be used. See, it's not really simply a feel-good phrase. It's much more. It's much more than an inspiring quote to hang on our wall. It's really a challenge. It was a challenge to Esther, and it's a challenge to us. We've got to consider, what does God have for us in this time, at this place? How do we fit into his plan? And are we meeting that challenge, and, and what impact does that have on the world around us? So let's look at the study here in Esther. If you remember from what we've seen so far, Esther was raised as an orphan by her older cousin Mordecai, and now she's been chosen by the king out of all these ladies to be the queen of Persia. But what the king doesn't know is that Esther is Jewish, and that little fact is going to play a big difference in the rest of the story. In Kevin's message last week, we were reminded that cousin Mordecai was hated by a guy named Haman who was a, a close advisor to the king. And because Haman hated Mordecai and, and all the Jewish people, he maneuvered the king and was given the right to do whatever he wanted to the Jews. So in an edict, so an edict went out across the land to have them all annihilated. And that's where we pick up in chapter four. Actually, I want us to look back at the last verse of chapter three, Kevin talked about this last week. You remember the edict has just gone out to kill all the Jews. And, and we read here in verse 15, the couriers went out impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa. And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. City in confusion? I bet it was. A whole nation within the empire is going to be wiped out. And, and so there's fear and there's frustration. There's a lot of confusion. Everyone's, they, aren't, they don't understand why and what's happening. So the city's in an uproar. And while that's going on, the king and Haman sit down for a drink. Talk about bad leadership. It's sort of crazy. And it's like they, they couldn't care less what the people are going through. It really doesn't matter to them. 
And in that moment, these two self-absorbed guys sitting down for a drink, that's what brings us to chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In each and every province where the, the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. So we, we get this picture, right? It's a terrible situation. There's, and I think there's a reason we're given one phrase on top of the other describing what Mordecai was experiencing. He, he tore his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth was a coarse material made from goat's hair. It was intended to be uncomfortable. Just a, just a tough cloth they have on, against your body. The ashes symbolize desolation and ruin. And he went out wearing this stuff, ashes all over him, wailed loudly, and not just loudly, but also bitterly. I mean, we could have been told he was just wailing loudly. That would have gotten the picture across. But we're told he also wailed bitterly. It's like there's a stress going on here, right? They're trying to get us to see this picture. And he went into the midst of the city to do this. That's different, isn't it? I mean, most people, when they mourn, they want to do that somewhat privately, right? But Mordecai is so gripped with grief and, and the realization that so many people are going to die that he goes out and mourns in public. And with all those phrases, I think we're intended to get this picture. We're meant to feel a little bit of what he was feeling. Well, I mean, we're talking about intense grief. And then we see here that Mordecai went as far as the king's gate because he wasn't allowed to go any further with the sackcloth and ashes. In fact, in chapter, this is a place Mordecai's been to before to the gate. We know in chapter 2 we're told that he's sitting at the king's gate. And, and that doesn't mean he was just hanging out there. The, the text would tend to, to suggest to us that he was there with a, with a, as a place of position, an official position. Maybe as a judge, dis listening to disputes among people and making decisions about what should be done. So normally his role there would have been sort of impressive. And the gate itself was impressive. You know, archaeologists have been digging in Susa since the mid-1800s. They didn't find this gate, though, until 1970. And what they found was this huge gate. This gate sat at the edge of a moat that separated the palace from the rest of the city. And, and across that moat, on the palace side, was the gate. It was huge. It was it measured 130 by 100 feet. The walls were about 10 feet thick. The size of the columns in the center of the structure indicate that the gate probably stood between 30 and 50 feet high. It's huge. And at this impressive place where Mordecai had been many times, he's back now. But not to sit as a judge this time, not with the authority it had before. No, this time he's there to mourn. And he can't go further in sackcloth and ashes. See, you weren't supposed to go anywhere near the king if you were sad. 
Probably came in handy for the king, right? Just have happy people around you all the time. You may remember when Nehemiah went before King Artaxerxes and he was sad and the king noticed it. And remember Nehemiah said he was very much afraid. He was very much afraid because he knew to be sad in the king's presence could mean that he could be executed. You don't bring the king down, you lift him up. So Mordecai is mourning outside the gate, but it wasn't just Mordecai that was mourning. It says here in all the provinces, there was mourning among all the Jews, fasting, weeping, and wailing, laying on sackcloth and ashes. You get, we get the picture. This is a terrible time, and it's this time. This is the time. For such a time as this. This time of devastation. Esther, that's why you're queen. And in Esther's life and in ours, that statement's a challenge. A challenge for such a time as this. In, in a time of devastation, we are challenged to step up. You get the feeling that probably Esther is, she's not thinking this is something you hang on a wall. There's something much bigger. In this time of devastation, we are challenged to step. Ever been to a point where you're devastated? Ever feel crushed by circumstances around you? Probably all been there. Our family has a letter that was written by my grandpa's sister to another sister during the flu pandemic uh, in 1918. The letter's dated November 6, 1918. It's a long letter. Uh, I'm not going to read it all to you, but I do want to read a couple of paragraphs. Just listen to what they're going through. So she's writing to her sister and her family, and she says, Dear folks, I will try to answer your letter received sometime back. Well, I have the saddest news to write I ever wrote in my life. Mama is dead. She died Sunday, October 27th. Mark's little girl, Mark is a brother. Mark's little girl, Clara, died October 28th. Bruce's little baby, Bruce is another brother. Bruce's little baby, just three weeks old, died October 24th. Bessie Tipton, who was a cousin, died November 5th. They are looking for Hattie Tipton to die. And she tells us later in the letter that Hattie's baby died. It was influenza that killed them all. And she goes on through this letter. It's just incredibly sad. She tells all this, all the details she talks about how and when and where they buried their mom and the others. Details on how they couldn't bury their mom for three days because of all the rain. She talks about paying 90 cents for a black silk, silk robe to bury her in. And at one point she says, I couldn't think of all the deaths to write you. Every family you can hear from are down with influenza. She talks about how lonely they are. 
I, I can imagine that because I was, I, I know where they lived at the time. It's, there's no house there any longer. It's, it's National Forest actually right now. It's in the middle of nowhere. You, you got to have a four-wheel drive to get there. She talks about how lonely they are. She talks about how much they miss their mom. And toward the end, she says, I dread to hear from you all, afraid some of you are dead. Talk about devastation. Maybe you feel somewhat like that personally right now. Maybe, hopefully not on that level, but you're going through some tough times maybe. You're in some sort of circumstances that are just too much. Maybe you've lost hope and you're looking for a way out. But in that devastation, what we need to do is step up to the challenge. For such a time as this, whatever we're facing, God's still got a plan to use us for his glory. And here in Esther, it's not just Mordecai and the regular people who are mourning, it's also Esther herself. Verse four says, then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish. She's broken for such a time as this. This time of devastation, as Christians, we face those times just like everyone else does. Sometimes we grieve the loss of someone we love. Paul talked about that, and we often read this verse at, at, at the graveside, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Yeah, we grieve. We aren't in some plastic world where nothing ever touches us, where we walk around with just fake smiles on our faces. We grieve. But there's this huge difference. We don't do it like those who have no hope because we are convinced. We're convinced of the resurrection. We're convinced of eternal life. We're convinced that Jesus will return. We have that confident assurance. And in a time of devastation of any kind, for any reason, not just when we lose someone we love, but of any kind, we aren't without hope. And it's in those times that Christians step up. See, for someone who doesn't know Christ, they don't have that to hold on to. They don't have that, that assurance, that calm assurance that tells them of a purpose beyond what they're experiencing right now. But we have a hope. We have a sure hope that grips our hearts and grips our lives and allows us to keep moving forward and to step up in time. And why would we do that? Why would we get beyond the moment to something greater? Because it points others to our Father. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 14, he said, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. He's, what he's, saying, he's saying in the darkness that is in this world, and it's, it's dark all around. You're the light. And we're to let that light shine in the darkness. Why? So that others can see the Father. 
Paul put it this way in Philippians 2, 14. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Now, all the darkness around us, that word lights could be translated as stars. It's like you're looking up at a, at a pitch black sky except for the stars, the stars that are shining. That's what we are to this world. That's what Paul's saying there. We let our light shine in a time of, and it's, and it's in, the, in the darkness, right? A light doesn't really stand out unless it's in the darkness. So it's in the darkness. It's in this difficult, dark world that we live in that our light shines. And our Father gets recognized for who he is for such a time as this. At the most difficult times of our lives, we step up so that people will see him. And how do we do that? How how do we step up? Well, look at what happens next. And as you read it, it's it's like Esther and Mordecai start texting each other. Or at least they use their ancient version of it. It's a little slower. They start sending a guy named Hathak back and forth with messages. Verse 5 says, Then Esther summoned Hathak from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text See, I told you they texted. (laughs) Gave him a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her, and to order her to go to the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. Hathak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces Know that for any man or woman who comes to the king, to the inner court, who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. 30 days. She's like, hey, Mordecai, let me get this right. You want me to go to the king. I can't go to the king. If I go to the king, I die. I go to him without him asking for me. I'm in, he hasn't asked for me for 30 days. I don't know. He's probably got somebody else right now. He's not interested in me. I can't go there. It's against the law. Herodotus, the Greek historian, tells us that the Persian kings would, would isolate themselves for two reasons. One, for their own protection. And Secondly, so that they could enhance the dignity of being king. So they, they, there was a lot of prestige with being able to go and the rare opportunity that you got to go into his presence. And so Esther knows she can't just waltz in there. But then Mordecai texted back, verse 13. 
when Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. So he gives her a simple logical argument. You, you don't think you can go? Because you're going to die if you're going to... And basically his argument says this, hey, if you don't go, guess what? You're going to die anyway. So yes, you may die if you do something, but you will die, you will die if you do nothing. So she's about to risk her life and her legacy with no guarantee of a positive outcome. But did he catch what else Mordecai said there? He said, if you don't go and talk to the king, then I want you to know, Esther, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. So what's the other place? And, and what most scholars would say is that he's referring to God. See, he's got confidence that God is going to provide for his people in this devastating situation. What he's saying is, hey, Esther, what happens next? Whatever happens next, it's not going to be accidental. Whatever happens next is going to be providential. What a great way to be able to live life, right? To know. I don't know what tomorrow's going to be like. I don't know what next week's going to be like. But I know this. Whatever happens is not accidental. It's providential. It's part of God's plan. He's got it. I can trust him. Mordecai is trusting God and what we need to do at those times, at that time of de devastation, in order for our light to shine, in order for our people to see our Father, is simply to trust Him. Step up and trust Him. Don't allow those times, don't, in, in, in those times, don't start questioning His goodness. Don't start questioning His plan. Don't start questioning His power. No, Trust him. Mordecai has faith that relief is going to come. He's trusting God for such a time as this. See, it's not just a challenge to step up. It's more specifically a challenge for faith. Trust God. And then Esther gave her response in verse 16. She said, okay, go assemble all. This is back to Mordecai. Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. She's like, okay. You want me to go, and okay, I, I get it, and I'm, I'm going to go. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to get all the Jewish people together in Susa, and I want you guys to fast for me for three days, night and day. And I'm gonna, we're going to do the same thing inside the palace. You do it outside the palace. And, and while she doesn't mention prayer directly, the fact is there was no fasting without prayer. They go together. See, this is Esther also turning to God relying on him, trusting him. 
Like we're told in the New Testament that in a time of need, what do we do? We draw near to his throne. Why? To find grace and mercy. Going through some tough times, maybe the most devastating time of your life, for such a time as this, it's a time, challenge to step up, but it's a challenge to trust him. So we run to him. We don't question him. We don't distance ourselves from him. Instead, we go toward him. We pursue him. It's a challenge to trust him. It shows humility and dependence on our part toward him. It's also a challenge to sacrifice, and that's exactly what Esther does. She commits to sacrifice. She says, hey, when we're, when we're done fasting, I'm going to go to the king. And if I perish, I perish. Now, that's not said with resignation. It's not like, if I die, I die. You know, no, no. no, it's said with commitment. She's willing to pay any price. She's trusting God enough to give everything to him. You want to step up in a time of devastation? Trust him and trust him enough to commit yourself into his hands. Because anyone in a time of devastation who can trust God and commit themselves to him and are willing to pay the cost, that person will know the provision of God in that time. And we're all where we're at because of him. It's God who has given us all that we have, right? Everything we've got. We remember what James says, that every good thing given and every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights. Every good thing we've got, our jobs, our position, our resources, our education, all of our material possessions, our family, our friends, It's God. It's all from him. And he's opened the opportunities for us to optimize all of that for his kingdom purposes. And he didn't place us where we are with what we've been given to just sit back and coast into heaven one day. He's placed us where we are because we are in a battle, a war, and we're in the midst of a cosmic conflict between good and evil. And to miss your kingdom assignment because you've become so wrapped up in your personal kingdom, well, that's the greatest tragedy I think you could ever face. Don't miss your kingdom assignment for such a time as this. An entire nation became grateful for how Esther responded to Mordecai's challenge. Their lives were spared. I wonder how many lives could be spared in the culture we live in today if we chose to step up to service, to trusting God, to sacrifice. The question is, are we, are we willing to pay the price for such a time as this? What we'll see next week is that because Esther was willing to pay that cost, God does, in fact, 
use her to save his people. So come back next Sunday, see how the king responds. But today we've got to ask ourselves the obvious questions, don't we? In order to impact the world around us, in order to shine a light in the darkness, in order for our Father to be seen for who he is, will we step up? Will we trust him? Will we commit to sacrifice no matter what the cost? For such a time as this. And if you've never trusted Christ, but the idea of serving one who can give purpose and meaning to even the toughest times in life sounds intriguing to you, well, we'd love to talk to you about that. We'd love to talk to you about how you can walk through life with the one who has life in his hands. And the one who has a design, a plan, they could use you. to expand his kingdom. We'll have pastors in room one after the service. If you want to talk to us, we'd be glad to talk with you. For believers, for such a time as this, we, we think we're going through a tough time in this world right now. In the darkness, what a time for our light to shine. What a time for people to see us trusting God. For people to see us committing our lives to him fully and letting us let them see him. For such a time as this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for your goodness to us. You've poured out so many good things on us. And, uh, and Father, you've allowed us to be used uh, all the good things and, Father, all the difficult things. You'll allow us to be used for your glory, that you would be recognized. For those of us who know you, I pray, God, that today we would, in fact, maybe recommit. Father, today we would acknowledge our need of just trusting you more. We'd be willing to pay whatever cost so that others would see you. And Father, for anyone here who maybe has not come to that point of faith, they've never taken that step of, of faith in the first place. God, Father, I pray that you'd open their heart and their mind, that they would see and understand truth, and they would turn to you today. Father, that they would know what it is to be forgiven and know they're on their way to heaven, but in the, in the meantime, Father, to know that they, they could be part of your great plan. To bring others to you. 
thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.